please permit me to make your acquaintance in so informal a manner. This request may seem strange and unsolicited, but I will crave your indulgence and pray that you view it seriously. My name is Dan Patrick, one of the close aides to the former president. Due to the military campaign of Laurent to force out the rebels in my country, we need a reliable and trustworthy foreign partner who can assist us to move this money out of I must use this opportunity and medium to implore you to exercise the utmost indulgence. If you are willing to assist us, you can contact me through my email address above with your telephone. Thank you and God bless. Best regards, Mr. Dan Patrick. Sound familiar? Have you ever received one of these phishing emails and wondered, is there a real person sending this email? Who are they? Where are they? Sitting at home, bored, trying out a new career in cybercrime? In the office, looking at a computer, drinking their morning coffee? I'm Katie Finlayson. Welcome to Hackable Me, a series that dives into the world of cybercrime to help protect yourself and your organisation. In this episode, we go in search of the cybercriminal. We find out who they are, where they come from, and why they do it. We'll reveal how groundwork is carefully laid for an attack and help you identify what to look out for when you think you're on the receiving end of a fisherman's line. We know a lot about some of them and very little about others. Sherrod DeGrippo is the Senior Director of Threat Research and Detection at Proofpoint. She told me the most common cybercriminal is one trying to push something called commodity crime. So your commodity crimeware typically is some sort of malware that is intended to steal something, whether it's money or credentials or information, just sort of those attempts to have a good payday. And they're usually coming from groups in Eastern Europe, Russia, former Soviet countries, things like that. Those groups are typically quite organized. They approach it as a business. Many of them work Monday through Friday. They take weekends off. They work regular business hours and a lot of them have offices. There are actors that will be very targeted about their attempts. So they may research the individual closely. They may get to know information about them. They might have a specific thing in mind that they want to steal. And then on the other side of that spectrum, we have actors who just go for mass volume and they just send out as many attacks as they can hoping that doing large volumes will allow them to have some percentage of success. These days, cybercrime is an international enterprise. And then we have actors that are typically based out of places like Nigeria and Morocco who are focused on things like email fraud, often referred to as BEC, business email compromise or email account compromise. A lot of what those actors do is focus on getting their victim into a one-on-one conversation where they're able to impersonate someone, for example, impersonate a CEO and send an email out to an administrative assistant that says something like, hey, I need to buy a birthday gift for one of my colleagues and it's really important that we get it done today. Can you please make this purchase and send me gift cards or can you get this sent to this particular address, things like that. So those actors are very creative um, and they usually operate in small groups of purpose-built teams. So they might have one person on the team who focuses on sending the email and engaging the victim in conversation. They might have someone else on the team who works on 
graphics and making up fake websites or making emails look really realistic. They'll have someone else on the team who's responsible for money laundering and moving money across different bank accounts so that the tracks are hidden. Not all cyber criminals are motivated by money. The obvious one that comes to mind is APT or state-sponsored threat actor groups. Those actor groups typically don't have a financial focus, except for some operations that we've seen from countries like North Korea and Iran because they are so economically isolated. Generally, nation-state actor groups are looking to obtain further access and information for espionage that they then might transfer back to on the ground, actual spy versus spy type espionage, or they might use it to get ahead in business things like intellectual property or perhaps a lawsuit of some kind that they want to make sure their country wins, they'll go through and use the information that they gather for whatever is most advantageous to that country. So now we understand how it works, let's consider how hacking can be used for good rather than evil. Mark de Frontignac is a certified ethical hacker. Ethical hacking is when you try to find vulnerabilities uh, in an organization's infrastructure. Typically, organizations will actually employ the services of an ethical hacker, uh, a white hat. Um, usually, they're the good guys of, of security, as opposed to black hats, who are actually the, the bad guys who uh, hack uh, for a certain objective. That could be for a monetary gain or uh, uh, to steal information. Their objective as a white hat hacker is to understand the, the, the weaknesses of an organization. And that could be both technological or it could also be the vulnerabilities in people. So there are good hackers and bad hackers, but they do share certain personality traits. Being persistent, constantly trying to achieve the objective you're after. And if you fail in your attempts, try and try again until you eventually are successful. There are obviously other traits such as attention to detail. So really getting in and understanding how things work. Also, the ability to leverage the, the information that you have. There's a lot of that information that's available on the internet. So being able to research information uh, and also look at things from a different perspective or a different way. As Proofpoint Senior Director of Threat Research and Detection, Shara Jagrippo has spent a lot of time trying to get inside the minds of cyber criminals and investigating how they lay the groundwork for their attacks. Some of our large actors, they'll just send out to any email address that they happen to have on hand. They'll go on maybe an underground forum or they'll find a list of names somewhere and they'll just start sending without a lot of um, background information. While other groups will do things like get on social media sites or get on something like LinkedIn and start to understand who they want to attack and why. So they start doing reconnaissance on the humans because those are the things that they're trying to exploit. In a lot of network attacks, the threat actor will profile the system that they want to attack or the system that they want to exploit. And in the case of email, a lot of times the thing that they want to exploit is the human who opens and reads that email. So in order to exploit that human, you need to know things about them. You need to know potentially what their vulnerabilities are, and you need to know what will happen if you are able to get to get into their system. For example, if you're looking at, for example, a chief financial officer in a company that's a very high up person in an organization with financial responsibilities, you might say, I bet that this high ranking finance official 
has access to a lot of funds and can move money around with no problem, just a flick of the wrist. And I could probably get funds moved if I were able to compromise this person's machine. But I also bet that because this person is high ranking in the company, they have extra controls around their capabilities. They have extra protections on their machine. And they likely are a little bit more trained. They've probably got more security awareness training. They've been told to watch out for these kinds of threats. So what that threat actor might do is they'll say, you know, I want to get to that CFO eventually, but I'm going to start off with their administrative assistant and I'm going to compromise their machine and start reading back through their emails. And maybe once I'm in their email, I can see, oh, they've had a conversation with their boss. I'm going to go back into that conversation and I'm going to reply again. And remember now we're broken into the email of the assistant. So we're coming from their email account and we respond back to an old thread from a few days ago. We say, hey, you know, the wiring instructions that you sent me, they were changed. The vendor called me and they'd rather have that money wired to this account instead. Could you please make that change for me? And so it's coming from a legitimate email account within the company and it's a thread that existed before. And so they'll go ahead and make that change and that money will get rerouted instead of to the legitimate vendor where it was supposed to go to a threat actor's money laundering account. When planning an attack, cyber criminals often make use of information that's freely available online. With the internet, a lot more information about people is available. You could ask the question to yourself, how many social media accounts that you, you actually have and what do you actually post on those social media accounts? And the social media accounts might be personal social media, it could be business-related social media, say, for example, LinkedIn uh, or personal, which could be Facebook or even Instagram. So all that information sits on the internet is all accessible and indexed by Google. So you could run searches for people's names. And um, if you don't protect that information or you don't lock it down, it's all accessible by these actors. Say, for example, from a business standpoint, so LinkedIn, that could not only just be their name, but it could be a picture of them. It could also be their title at the organization could also be the previous roles they had at the company, plus any sort of applications they may have worked on. If you're a hacker or a fisher and, and you want to try to target an individual that perhaps had privileged access to certain uh, applications, that information is all there available for you in LinkedIn. Cyber criminals take a variety of approaches. Some attacks are very individualized and very targeted, and other attacks are really just throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks. We have um, actors that do a lot of personalization. So they'll send the email and it'll have the person's name. It'll indicate that they met them in the city where they live. And they'll, they'll have gone through and profiled their targets. Even if those, there's hundreds of targets, they'll have scraped um, a, a breach database or they'll have some sort of information source that they've gathered from a free and open source intelligence database or something like that. So they'll craft these really personalized seeming emails and they're doing that at scale. Even though they seem that it was written just one time for the one person, when we look at it from our point of view and our data, we see that these were sent to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people, but they seem so customized 
the threat actors are really using technology to do social engineering at scale. So we have those types of actors. And then we have actors who, you know, they'll send a couple hundred emails or maybe even a dozen and just sort of see what happens. A lot of times we'll look at the um, intended recipients of those campaigns and they have nothing in common. Phishing, what it does is use social engineering to, to convince a target to perform an action. It is very psychological and a lot of the time it's actually preying on the, the target's lack of education and understanding of technology. We do see a lot of phishing occur with URLs or in, in the actual email itself or sometimes even with attachments. But the main lure of the phishing email is to convince someone to uh, perform the action to either click on that URL or to open that attachment. Um, and again, to do that, convincing requires you to social engineer them. The things like having an eye-catching subject is a good example of one of those you know, lures. And also things like a sense of urgency. Don't give the, the target some time to actually think about what they're doing. Again, it comes back to psychology and social engineering. Something else that we see is mixes within campaigns of different social engineering lures. So they might send a campaign of, let's say, 10,000 messages. Mixed within those 10,000 messages are maybe five different versions of an email body lure. So one of them might say, please find attached a list of all of the people that will be laid off next week. Protect this list. We need you to review it. And then another email might say, I met you at your location in New York. I was very angry with the service I received. See the legal documents that are attached because I'm suing you. So the threat actor might have multiple different social engineering premises in a single campaign. And then as time goes on, their next campaigns, they will only use the lures that were most successful so that they can hopefully ensure a higher and higher success rate as they do the various testing within those campaigns. So it is very much like marketing campaigns. And I, I have made that analogy in the past. I don't want to disparage marketers, but the methodology is similar. Cybercrime is constantly evolving. So how do data security experts uncover attacks and protect organizations? So the way that we find out about what the threat actors are doing is we watch over a billion emails a day with our systems, both automated, primarily automated, and then of course with human analysis. We see all of the things that are coming in. We strip out attachments and we strip out URLs and we inspect them to see what they are, what they're doing. And we use various points of attribution to determine who the actors are Maybe it's IP address or infrastructure reuse or code reuse or language or targeting. So one of the ways that we understand what the actors are doing is, a, is of course, first we have to assign an actor. And so once we've done that, we can sort of go back and see what sorts of lures, so what email bodies and tricks they've used for the social engineering piece. And then we can go back and associate them based on the types of malware they use, where they like to send their payloads. So maybe they like to send to Europe. Maybe they like to send to Australia. So we have a comprehensive library of 
what we call phishing templates, which is essentially a, a login page which the actors recycle. So the hackers will recycle these phishing templates and just slightly change the code. So we're able to actually detect these phishing templates that they're reusing. And in this case here, we were able to see that email that was sent to that person and then analyze it and determine that it was definitely malicious. And what about us? How can we minimize the risk of cyber attack? The first way would be by educating ourselves. A lot of governments actually have departments which can send emails out to you around the types of threat campaigns that they're seeing or the types of scams they're seeing today. Educate yourself about how you use email. Educate yourself how you use, say, Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is accessible essentially everywhere. A lot of it's public-based Wi-Fi, so if you venture out to the airport or even in the city, there tends to be a lot of public Wi-Fi networks. So if you are connecting to a Wi-Fi network, especially if it's public, you could be sharing sensitive information. So if you connect to that Wi-Fi network and you surf the internet on that Wi-Fi network, all your information could be captured within that Wi-Fi network by a hacker. Not only could it be that, but it could also be a hacker's Wi-Fi network that you're actually connecting to in the first place. The next way to protect ourselves relates to privacy. Thinking about what you actually share on those social media accounts is, is quite important. What type of personal identifiable information are you actually posting on those social media accounts? So taking a step back and thinking about that, but also thinking about how you would lock down those social media accounts as well. If I run a Google search, can I find information about you and how easy is it to find information about you? Privacy uh, in terms of uh, if I sign up to a new service or if I go and, uh, say, for example, purchase a new car that sends information to the manufacturer about how the car is being used, and that may include information about me, where I park the car, where my location is, and knowing what the manufacturer does with that information is also very important. I think the average person can protect themselves from attack by very carefully inspecting the things that they click on and the things that they download. Doing things like basic security hygiene of updating the computers, making sure software and operating systems are up to date, looking at things that are going in and out. So understanding what your system is connected to, what things have access. Ultimately, security basics like updates, email inspection, being careful what kind of information you pass over the network. Those are really the things that the average person can do to protect themselves. I'd like to thank my guests for this episode, Sherrod DeGrippo and Mark DeFrontiac. You can learn more at proofpoint.com slash hackable me. I'm Katie Finlayson, and this is Hackable Me. In our next episode, we dive deeper into the psychology of cybercrime. Why are humans so susceptible to cybercriminal behaviour? Look for Hackable Me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Enigma Marketing and Audiocraft. Music is by Epidemic Sound.